morning and welcome back to Rising, one of our last shows of the year 2023. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday. Today I'm joined remotely, of course, by the lovely Jessica Burbank. Hello, Jessica. Hello, Robbie. How was your Christmas? Mine was just fine. How was yours? Mine was great. There was a baby there, Robbie. Babies make everything better. I am, I am jealous. Actually, there was a baby announcement at the Christmas I attended, so that was pretty exciting too. Baby on the way. Um, so I was excited to hear about that for some family members. Uh, but let's get to the show. Take it away, Jessica. We love babies, but serious matters afoot. The Michigan Supreme Court is rejecting efforts to keep Donald Trump off of the ballot in 2024. The attempt to exclude former President Trump from the ballot based on the insurrectionist ban in the U.S. Constitution has been denied by the key swing state's high court. This stands in contrast to the recent ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court, which removed Trump from its primary ballot due to his involvement in the January 6th Capitol riot. The divergent rulings heighten the significance of potential appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court, particularly as the nation approaches the commencement of the 2024 primaries. Unlike the situation in Colorado, the Michigan lawsuit was dismissed early in the legal process without reaching trial, and the decision was upheld by an intermediate appeals court. The judge from the Michigan Court of Acclaims, who initially handled the case, asserted that state law provides no flexibility for election officials to scrutinize the eligibility of presidential primary candidates. Additionally, he argued that the case posed a political question that should not be resolved within the judicial system. The latest real clear polling average from the state of Michigan has Trump leading Biden in the general election by almost five percentage points. The latest real clear polling average from the state of Michigan has Trump leading Biden in the general election by almost five percentage points. And the most recent morning consult insider poll has Trump ahead in several key swing states. Looking at the bird's eye view of the election, the Hill Decision Desk Survey has Trump ahead in the national ballot by two percentage points. So, you know, Trump doing very well, up five, four or five points in the very states that he needs to win the election in 2024. Um, you know, signs for him are very good right now. I guess if you're Biden, you have to hope the economy is going to turn around and everybody forgets about Israel-Palestine for five seconds. Um, those are certainly things that could happen. Of course, you know, the age issue is not going away. Indeed, it's just going to get worse as we see and hear more from Biden in the coming uh, months. Um, how would you be feeling if you were on Team Biden, Jessica? I would be feeling bad, Robbie. I'd be feeling very bad. Two percentage points is pretty significant across all of these polls. Uh, if I was on Team Biden, I would really just be ramping up the messaging around what the administration has accomplished, um, which isn't much, but there is significant stuff there about reducing inflation. They could talk about the Inflation Reduction Act, and they could point out that very many Republicans went to their home states and these were members of Congress just bragging that the money allocated through the IRA, which many of them were vehemently against, is now being used for projects in their state. And isn't that so great? And aren't I a great representative who you should elect over and over and over again? It's kind of ridiculous how many Republicans have, have played both sides through the Biden presidency. When this is on the floor, they're saying government spending is terrible unless it's in my state and I can use it to jockey for more votes. I think that's just incredibly dishonest politics. But Biden has this kind of adversity to point this stuff out. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that it happens with, with the Democratic representatives as well. And he's such a partisan guy. And people really want someone who's a bit of an independent thinker, someone willing to call out what's going on in the party system. If I was on Team Biden, I would tell him to peacefully retire because anyone on Team <laughs> Biden is on Team Democrat. Those two things are one and the same. He's a partisan guy. And so have Biden peacefully retire and let someone from the next, next generation come forth because really what we're going to see is the death of the Democratic Party if they don't realize the state of politics in the country. 
Yeah, and you'd think it would occur to them, but of course, they walked right into the same exact disaster in 2016, uh, the Democratic Party did, ignoring the obvious flaws of Hillary Clinton, well-publicized flaws, saying, well, that doesn't matter, you shouldn't care about that. It was like they thought people shouldn't care about the emails and the you know, her history of not being a particularly well-liked political figure. They thought that shouldn't matter to people, but it did matter to people, and they just didn't care that it mattered to people, and, and that's how you got Trump in the first place. Trump obviously has a much more combative uh, relationship with the Republican Party than Biden does with the Democratic Party. Um, you know, Trump, the, the Republican, at the most elite level, Republicans actually probably do, in fact, wish that Trump could would magically disappear because they think they'd have better odds uh, without him, but that's never going to happen. The base, the voters actually do want him. They want the opportunity to vote for him, despite uh, the Colorado decision, which is now called into question by this decision out of Michigan. So split rulings, you know, makes it even more likely that the Supreme Court is going to have to weigh in and adjudicate um, swiftly whether Donald Trump's name can appear on the ballot. Um, that is, I would expect them to say that. Uh, you know, it looks like a lot of, uh, obviously there are some legal experts and, and many who wish Donald Trump, you know, who think that because of the insurrection, uh, a, a part of the 14th Amendment, that he can't be on the ballot. Um, a lot of others, even very anti-Trump people, disputing whether the insurrection language applies specifically to Trump's conduct. Even if you think Trump's conduct was really bad and you don't think he should be president again, does that preclude him from being on the ballot so that you can vote for you know an inherently political question, a, a, a question of of democracy. So Michigan, you know, reaching a different uh, different conclusion and thus, I think, setting us up for the Supreme Court to eventually rule. Yeah. And the Supreme Court on Friday, the U.S. Supreme Court, not Michigan, they declined to immediately comment on Trump's immunity, whether or not he could uh, be, you know, barred from holding public office on 14th Amendment, Section 3 grounds, which state, you know, an insurrectionist cannot hold public office. And so I, I think it's it's more telling that they won't say anything immediately. You might be right, Robbie, that they were waiting for something like this to happen, for there to be split rulings among these two states, Colorado and Michigan. And in a state like Michigan, where Trump is steadily polling ahead, I can see many people who maybe don't really care that much about the intricacies of the American judicial system, and I can't really blame them. But if you're a Trump supporter in the state of Michigan, I, I can imagine this would sow some distrust if you see the candidate that you want to vote for being taken off of the ballot, something that's decided by a panel of about nine uh, judges in Colorado, it was seven. And, you know, you're like, what happened to democracy? Why are seven people deciding this? And so I really think that the Supreme Court declining to comment was probably a smart move until they have something, you know, real to decide on before the court, which this split ruling could be that thing. But as many people stated, this prosecution of Donald Trump could actually make him more popular, him being two points ahead. You know, it's, it's pretty shocking, actually, because Biden really lost it when he decided to be so pro-Israel at the face of many well-documented human rights violations, at the face of the entire international community, with over 90 percent of states represented in the General Assembly of the United Nations really supporting a ceasefire at a time when the U.S. was vetoing it. He's really alienating us in the global stage. And no matter what side you're on, that's not a really great thing for a president to do, no matter how you feel about Israel-Palestine. So I really think uh, President Biden, by not delivering on his promises and really dropping the ball on Israel-Palestine relations, he's responsible for him dipping in the polls. I don't know if I credit you know, Donald Trump's prosecution for him rising in the polls, Definitely not going to help him in the state of Colorado if this stands. Hmm. I, I do think uh, the Israel-Palestine issue is is hurting Biden by turning off um, a, a lot of very vocal, very loud young people. You know, regardless of whether you think it's the right policy or not, it clearly is uh, a, a dividing issue in the in the Democratic coalition right now, which means it's not good for Joe Biden. So I would agree with you on that. Uh, we'll be right back with more rising in just a minute. Delta passengers, there may be some turbulence at the gate 
over the holiday weekend, video surfaced of an interaction between trans actress Tommy Dorfman and a Delta Airlines employee where Dorfman alleges the employee misgenders the actress. Let's watch. And what about when a Delta employee misgenders you I'm intentionally? So while, she's talk, while he's talking, you're talking. You just misgendered me again. Okay. Multiple times. Gotcha. Both of you have. Sorry. Wasn't intentional, but if you yeah. want to take it personal, that's also. Well, okay. she did do it intentionally twice. You're talking to me too. You said she, and then you said he. You're being condescending, and if you want to continue, Ooh. I have Port Authority escort you out the building right this moment if you want to play that game with me. Okay. Would you like to continue three days before Christmas? I really don't mind. I'm good. I'll just put this on. Dorfman is best known for starring in Netflix's 13 Reasons Why and posted this clip on TikTok accusing the employee of committing a human rights violation for using the wrong pronouns. The video quickly went viral on conservative Twitter after commentator Libs of TikTok posted it there, adding trans activists tried bullying an airline employee for misgendering the employee, wasn't having it. This is the correct way to deal with these narcissists who demand we give in to their delusions. It's all just a power trip for them. Delta has yet to respond to the clip. So this was posted uh, by Dorfman on uh, TikTok initially and then uh, got a lot of conservative pickup. Um, I, look, I am always hesitant to make any judgments based on short um, video clips. I like to see more context and to know exactly what was going on. But of course, this was posted by, uh, by the individual um, Dorfman uh, herself, so so she, I guess, thought this made her look good. Um, I don't think it makes her look good. Why would you film yourself like having and like people are just filming too many things for for one thing. Like we need to all treat each other with a little um, a little with respect and also patience. I it sounds like the person didn't know what the right pronoun was to use, and there's no reason to make a federal case out of it, or to say it's a human rights violation, which actually does like necessitate in some states, like a, that a, the government would investigate you for saying the wrong word to someone in, during a quick exchange at a ticket counter. I mean, have people totally lost their their minds? What am I? What am I missing, Jessica? I don't know. Uh, lives of TikTok calling that bullying. I, I don't think it was bullying. But um, I, I would really like to see what happened before this. Tommy Dorfman, she explained that there was an exchange where the airline worker, the employee, I don't know if it was a flight attendant or a desk worker, had intentionally misgendered her several times. Who knows what that interaction looked like? I think that's probably why she decided to take out her phone and start recording, because, you know, maybe something would be said again and she wanted to have it on video. But I, I wouldn't call this bullying, right? It was a tense exchange. Clearly, she was shaken up about whatever had happened with the employee before this one. And this employee just seemed to, to not want to deal with any kind of altercation and went really quick to escorting her out of the building. She was clearly upset about something that happened before. But I don't know. I Would you call this bullying, Robbie? I think that's strong use of language from Libs of TikTok. I mean, I think it's bullying to surveil someone, to start recording someone, because maybe they didn't refer to you the way you wanted to be referred. Um, and look, I'm nice. I'll just, I want to use whatever language people want. Uh, I don't want to have uncomfortable interactions with people. So I, like, I'm not speaking for myself, but if you don't do that, I don't have a problem with it either. And like, can we just move on? Actually, the people I feel worse for who are not shown in that video is whoever's waiting behind um, uh, Tommy Dorfman in line, like for their, you know, late for their flight. Can you please, can you please move this along? You really have to have a fight about transgender pronouns in like the airline, the, the notoriously stressful airline uh, ticketing line before you go through um, airport security, which is another stressful experience. Like, come on. I no. This seems like uh, I, I think the the individual. Uh, the the actress wanted to make this into a big like I was victimized by you know what this what what this person said to me so let me record this so let me get my my moment in the spotlight so everyone can celebrate how how wrongfully I was treated and what actually happened if you I looked at some of the you know the comments on um, on on that video or elsewhere where it was was posed not just under the libs of TikTok version of it where of course everyone's going to agree with what libs of TikTok had to say but other places most people being like 
give me a break. How entitled are you? Why would you do this? Um, I don't think it. I don't think it makes. Um, I don't think it makes her look good. Yeah, I, I don't have a, a lot of respect. I actually have no respect for libs of TikTok. It's a very low effort media hobby that uh, Chai Reichik has. I think it's really just poor to take videos out of context and post them and say this is all about power for them. Every single trans person I know is very kind and very understanding and gets that this is a big change in our society and culture in this country. And they're just grateful when you ask what pronouns they prefer. I've literally never met someone who gets angry when someone doesn't use the proper pronouns. But I, I have seen transgender people get upset when someone intentionally misgenders them, when someone won't recognize their identity, when they're intentionally mean to them because they don't approve of their way of life. That's really just like infringing on their personal space, their personal space, uh, peace traveling through the airport during a very stressful time, as you point out, Robbie. So I, I really don't know what happened to Tommy Dorfman before this, but I will say everything I know about the transgender community goes directly against what Libs of TikTok is trying to make it about based on a, a, a very selected interaction. So I, I just don't have a lot of respect for what Libs of TikTok is trying to do there. And I think they're just outright wrong about how they're trying to frame how transgender people act in our society. Well, I don't think Libs of TikTok is really at fault here. I mean, it was Tommy Dorfman who put the, who circulated the clip in the first place. It's not like Libs of TikTok snatched this clip out of obscurity. Um, the, the, the transgender individual filmed it and posted it, I think, thinking that it would make um, her look good, and then most people are not having that reaction. I don't really think that's, you know, Libs of TikTok's um, a problem. And, you know, and, and again, in most cases, I think, look, and I'm not saying I necessarily agree with the politics of this account, but it, it seems like mostly it's publicizing videos that other people put out there. I mean, if you put it out there, that's that's because you you want other people to see it, right? You, you think it's, it, it makes you look... Um, look good. I mean, also, I, I sh we should recognize, so this person's name is, this is a, a male to female transition, um, but kept Tommy Dorfman, the birth name, uh, kept the same birth name. I get Tommy can be a woman's name, but if you, I don't know, if you, if you were presented with someone who is female presenting, but has what is more commonly a male first name, and, and you get that wrong off the bat, that makes you, the, the Human Rights Commission should investigate you, that's insane to me. Well, she said, Robbie, repeatedly this person was misgendering her. So it sounds like it wasn't just they got it wrong after reading her name one time. I think Libs of TikTok is is not at fault for the video existing. Of course not. Tommy Dorfman posted it for her followers on social media, which is a community of people that intended to interact with her. Libs of TikTok, by taking that video from there and posting it and saying it's all about a power trip for them and adding context that they're not even sure is, is true about the interaction, saying she was bullying the employee. I didn't see her bully the employee in that video. I've worked in you know retail, I've worked in customer service. I was a bartender for a long time. I've dealt with people that were extremely hostile. This was not a hostile interaction on her behalf. The way it's carroting, isn't it carroting to, to threaten to call the human rights investigators? I don't think she called in human rights investigators. I think she just called it a human rights violation to repeatedly misgender someone. It's it, it's a hate crime. Um, but I, I think gender violence also is, is a hate crime, according to the United Nations. So I think when you see that employee reacting so uh, aggressively to this person that came up and said, you know, she misgendered me multiple times, like I want something done about this, instead of saying, all right, I'm going to call my higher ups. Instead, he decided to have that confrontation. And most employees are given a directive not to have confrontations with customers. And so he made a deliberate decision to do that. I'm kind of more disgusted by the employee, not just reacting in a basic human manner, like you've clearly been upset, this offended you, I'm sorry this happened, I'm gonna call my higher ups because this is clearly not my job as a desk agent. Like there was a better way to handle this. Yeah, well, again, we only got to see a brief clip of it, so I don't know how it was handled in the footage we didn't see, but um, we debate, you decide. Let us know what you thought about this viral little TikTok, and we'll have more rising right after that.
2024 looms in the distance as 2023 comes to a close. And with 2024 comes, of course, the presidential election. But Americans might not be able to cast their ballot for their preferred candidates, as we've covered a number of times on Rising. Former President Donald Trump has been removed from Colorado's primary ballot as a litany of lawsuits in other states across the country try to do the same. Third-party candidate RFK Jr. appeared on Charlie Kirk's show last week to discuss the move, calling it one of the craziest decisions he'd ever seen. Let's watch. That's one of the craziest decisions that I've seen, and it's terrible. I mean, it's just terrible that they... Um, you know, people, half, this, half the country wants to vote for Donald Trump somewhere around half. And, you know, if, if another country did that, like Pakistan or Iran or... You would sanction them. Well, yeah, we'd say that's not really a democracy. But, you know, we're doing it now. Faced with that reality, the Super PAC supporting Kennedy American Values 2024 has rolled out its ballot access priorities, announcing it will focus on seven states that add up to 183 electoral college votes, Arizona, California, Georgia, Illinois, Michigan, New York, and Texas. The PAC's founder, Tony Lyons, said of RFK Jr.'s chances that, quote, Kennedy has two clear pathways to the White House. We will do everything we can while working closely with our attorneys and without coordinating with the campaign to make sure that the uniparty fails in any efforts to derail the peaceful populist revolution that he represents. Here to talk about the PAC's plan for ballot access in 2024 is PAC founder Tony Lyons. Tony, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Tony, why don't you walk our viewers a little bit through how you chose those initial seven states to focus on? Yeah, so we chose you know, the states that we felt were really critical, where we felt that there were most likely to be challenges and that those challenges were going to be expensive and time consuming. And, you know, that that those were the places, those were the real battlegrounds for ballot access. So we're putting a lot of resources into that. And we're, you know, fighting for a fair election. And we feel that the American public ought to be outraged that a candidate and a super PAC have to spend millions and millions of dollars to get on the ballot when a candidate is polling at, you know, between 20 and 24 percent. Yeah, ballot access is a huge issue for third party and independent candidates and always glad to give it more coverage. The entrenched nature of the two party system is so hard to go up against on a structural level. But I wonder what you make of the decision by the Colorado court to refuse to let Donald Trump's name even appear on the ballot. RFK Jr. obviously calling this crazy, um, a blow to democracy. What are your thoughts? I have the same thoughts, you know, that I think that people who are warning or, you know, saying that they're trying to protect us from losing democracy in this country are the same people who are trying to take it from us. So, you know, we don't need people to take people off the ballot, to kick people off Twitter to protect us. We want people to get on the stage with opponents and tell us what their policies are. So we don't want people to be censored and vilified and deplatformed. And like I said, taken off the ballot. We want candidates who will get on the stage and show what their ideas are, what their policies are, what they would do as president for the people of this country. And so there are all of these forces who claim to be trying to protect us, but they're really trying to control us. So they're trying to tell us what to do, what to think, you know, what to put into our bodies and, you know, who we are allowed to vote for. And that is fundamentally un-American and it should not stand in this country. And it doesn't matter whether you agree with the person. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, Joe Biden, Donald Trump or Bobby Kennedy. What matters is that we have certain principles in this country that need to be defended. So you really have your work cut out for you. I was working on the 2020 Bernie Sanders campaign. It was a mess in 2016 as well. You make a good point to say that you have to turn your efforts towards addressing any coordination of the uniparty. 
to derail RFK's chances, RFK Jr.'s chances here. So what does that look like? What lessons are you drawing on from how, you know, Democrats and Republicans have both sort of pushed outsiders out of having any real political chance? Yeah, so I think that the American public is not willing to stand for it and that you're going to see a rebellion in 2024, that if these kinds of tactics continue, I think that Americans are going to take to the streets. They're not going to accept this kind of an outcome. They want a candidate who proves to them that he's healthy, that he's authentic, that he's going to fight for them, that he has integrity. And when you see Bobby Kennedy getting up on national television to defend the rights of his opponent, you know, that's the kind of character that we need in a president. And I think the American people see that and they're tired of these games and they simply will not accept them. Yeah, I think it's quite a contrast with uh, President Biden, who I believe said that, well, you know, he'll let the courts decide it. But uh, but of course, uh, former President Trump was responsible for an insurrection. Um, how do, does RFK Jr. hope to uh, eventually debate? You know, both these individuals have not participated in debates within their own sort of nominating system. Donald Trump is not attending the Republican uh, debates against Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, et cetera. And so far, Joe Biden has given and his team have given no indication that they would, um, you know, participate in a debate with. He has challengers as well, Marianne Williamson, Dean Phillips, et cetera. I, I think the assumption is, you know, when, when prime time starts, they're going to go head to head if they are indeed the two nominees, uh, the two major party nominees. Um, uh, you know, what, how, how would RFK Jr. distinguish himself in that environment? So I think that, you know, Bobby Kennedy has the kinds of qualities that you can't train for, you can't hire a consultant for. You know, he has integrity, authenticity. He tells the truth when he talks. And I think people really see that. And you're seeing that when people hear him talk, they're converted by him. You know, so right now, uh, if the election was held today and only people under 45 could vote, Bobby Kennedy would win the election. So you're seeing that when he's allowed to talk. And so, you know, those people, that demographic, that age group, they get their information from podcasts, from shows like this, not from The New York Times or The Washington Post. So when the places that are not censoring him allow him to talk directly to the American public, that public listens to him. So if Bobby Kennedy gets on stage, people will see the qualities that he has and they will want to vote for him. And that's why both parties, the Uniparty, basically wants to keep him off the stage because they're afraid that he will convince the American public that he will be a better president. And that's you know, that's something that ought to happen in a democracy, that you ought to be able to see the candidates, listen to their arguments and make a decision for yourself. What do you make of what the 2024 presidential race will be when it comes time for everyone to cast their ballots in the general? Are you anticipating uh, Trump being the nominee from the Republicans, Biden with the Democrats, and then RFK being the very viable third party candidate? Are you anticipating, you know, potentially challengers from the left, the Green Party being extremely viable as well? I'm curious what you think that looks like and what your strategy is for this type of scenario where we could have four very viable candidates where Americans are used to having two. Yeah, what I think is going to happen is that it's going to be Trump, Biden and Bobby Kennedy. And like I said, I think that if he gets on the stage, which he has to, you know, the American people will demand it. And on the stage, he will convince the American public that the other two candidates are not candidates who they want to be their president. So I think that's how it's going to play out. I see a pathway to that. And I, and I think that the struggles are going to be ballot access. Like I said, it's an outrage, but we're going to win these battles. The campaign's going to win the battles that they engage in in the states that they're working in. And Bobby Kennedy is going to get on the ballot in every state and he's going to win the election. Hmm. Before we let you go, uh, I know there was some news involving you and your uh, publishing company uh, a few days ago, uh, Skyhorse purchasing Regnery, a conservative uh, publisher. Can you uh, give us just a few words on the details of that and, and, and why that was a good business venture for you? 
Sure. Uh, Skyhorse Publishing is trying to uh, set itself up. I mean, I am trying to set up Skyhorse Publishing as a free speech publishing company to combat the sort of censorship and vilification that people on all sides get when they don't follow the mainstream narrative. So Regnery is a publishing company that's, you know, been in business for 75 years. It, it publishes kind of mainstream Republican uh, authors, uh, some, some really great books over many, many years, more than 1,500 books. So I'm, I'm really proud to be able to combat the censorship of those kinds of books in the publishing field and make sure that in the same way that we have choice in politics, that people have choice in books and ideas. And that I think is so fundamental to this country. And I'm proud to be a part of those kinds of struggles, you know, both in politics and in publishing. Tony Lyons, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been nearly four years since COVID-19 rocked the world and upended the lives of nearly everyone across the globe. But in all that time, in some ways, we're still just as in the dark as we were at the beginning when this whole mess started. As Lena Chan, author of Viral, The Search for the Origins of COVID-19, put it, we are four years into the pandemic and still no national commission to investigate the origin of COVID. Communications with the Wuhan lab have not been subpoenaed, intel not declassified, despite the COVID-19 Origin Act of 2023. Now at the center of the firestorm into the origins of COVID-19 is EcoHealth Alliance, a nonprofit group involved in high-risk coronavirus research in China, may have lied about risky behavior involved in that research. Joining us today to discuss EcoHealth Alliance and the origins of COVID-19 is Alina Chan. Thank you so much for being with us, Alina. Thanks for having me on. So I just saw a tweet on X that I think perfectly encapsulates this, and I see this periodically, often I think from people who are most the people who are most inclined to still alter their behavior due to COVID, who are still wearing masks in public and that kind of thing, will be the ones most likely to express the sentiment. I don't understand this. Maybe you can fill me in that it doesn't really matter whether COVID, where it came from, whether a lab or an animal origin, that it doesn't have policy implications. I find that attitude baffling. Have you encountered that out in the wild? Uh, yes, yeah, so I, I think there's a cycle of this every few months is that people would say, oh, why does it matter? Why, why should we find out how this pandemic started? And it, I think it, it just reflects their lack of thinking it through. Because currently both the wildlife trade and uh, research on life pathogens is proliferating. And unless we find the origin of COVID-19, it's hard to convince any government around the world to put in the full manpower and resources to regulate and curb these activities. Right. And, and if it's, I, I just want to know the truth. If it's an animal origin, then fine. We should think through what policies would prevent this from happening again. And if it's, you know, directly or indirectly the responsibility of the U.S. government or the Chinese government that, you know, research that we paid for, that they conducted, had something to do with that. I mean, of, of, of course, like the, the, the moral toll, maybe you know, even as, uh, apart from the, the policy uh, implications, it, is staggering because this did affect millions of people globally, millions of deaths. And you know, to not want to know more about that, I, I find um, uh, so confusing. And, and yet, as, as I think you've, uh, you've talked about a lot recently, our U.S. policymakers uh, don't seem so keen to to investigate that even when there even when we signed a disclosure that president biden was supposed to agreed to signed it that he would let us know all the information the federal government has about covid's origins we still didn't get that yes i think that was the most shocking thing of events this past year is that even though a bill passed in both the senate and house uh, unanimously so all of them agreed that all of this intel concerning the wuhan lab and the origin of covid should be declassified and it was signed into law by President Biden, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence still declined to declassify that information. So I think we're, we're now four years into the pandemic. What is needed so that we can see that intel? How does this not investigating the origins that is put us at a greater risk for potential future pandemics, if at all? I think there's this impasse that's happening right now. It is that those who argue against a lab leak and then blame it entirely on the wildlife trade, they're not willing to move forward on new regulations, like true real actions that could 
provide more global oversight over this type of work. So unless you show them evidence that this most likely sat in a lab, it's very difficult to push, push for new change. What intelligence, do you have any guesses or hunches, you know, having, having researched and done so much reporting on this, intelligence that, for instance, the Energy Department could have that led it to reach a conclusion that was different from other agencies? I, for my part, wonder if they know more about uh, reporting that appeared in the Wall Street Journal and a couple other places that the earliest uh, patients of, uh, of COVID or a COVID-like uh, disease were, the earliest infections were actually in the lab of those three scientists. If they, you know, that's a, a pretty definitive smoking gun if that could be shown. And I wonder if the Energy Department has that information. So I, I do believe that experts at the DOE and other intelligence agencies have had access to this intelligence regarding the sick Wuhan lab workers. And based on what I've heard, I, I feel fairly confident that those names that were reported by the Wall Street Journal are accurate. So these are the scientists who work most closely on, on the uh, genetic engineering of SARS-like viruses in that lab in Wuhan. <clears throat> and so it's not a smoking gun, but it, it surely is consistent with a possible lab origin of COVID-19. So everything that we know now is circumstantial, whether for a wildlife origin or for a lab origin, but we do have a clear path for a virus collected from nature to be outed in the lab and to have leaked in that city. We uh, so talk, oh, go ahead, Jessica. I've worked in the research space before. There's kind of a sentiment that you want the public to generally like the research you're doing or have an appreci appreciation for research. Is there a sentiment you think in the molecular biology community or virology research community that they don't want the public to be fearful of this kind of research and a lab leak might make people very fearful of this research so much so that there would be public pressure to end funding for this kind of research? Yes, that's true. So I, I do think that some scientists have these conflicts of interest in that if it is found that the pandemic was started because of scientific research and it's it's killed tens of millions of people, you know, uh, had the global economy cost trillions of dollars. Uh, now there are some 65 million people estimated to have long COVID and, and so many mental health issues coming from pandemic. If all of this arose because of this specific class of research that is focused on finding new viruses in nature and modifying them in labs, Yes, it's reasonable that a large number of people in the public would, would strongly advocate against this and cut funding for it. And so that, I, I think there's no way around it. But, but rather than be afraid of investigating, what they should be doing is showing that they are accountable, that they are transparent, and that they can investigate lab-based outbreaks. This, this is how to move forward in the future. It's not to suppress investigation, but to, to show that you are trustworthy. And yet we're still learning new information week after week that I think erodes confidence, erodes trust in the sort of in the, the scientific gatekeepers, the people who are who are filing for um, for grants to do this kind of research. It just emerged the other week. I believe it was Dr. Barrick, one of the uh, uh, foremost advocates of gain of function, uh, and it's shown that in uh, that you know behind closed doors when they're talking about their proposal to do gain of function research, and they admit in their notes they say, well, well, you know, let's. Let's not make it sound like this research is going to be done in China. After we've got the money, after we've got the approval, then we can actually do a lot of it in Wuhan. But we're not going to tell them that's what they're doing. Can you talk to us about that really amazing disclosure we saw last week? Yes. So this was an organization called the U.S. Right to Know. And so they, they are the, the one organization that's been filing so many uh, Freedom of Information Act requests against the uh, NIH against scientists involved in this type of work to try and find out what happened in Wuhan in the year leading up to the pandemic. And so what they found this time from emails from early 2018 is that the EcoHealth Alliance, which is a New York-based nonprofit, had written a proposal sent to the Department of Defense asking for millions of dollars to do some of this novel coronavirus research work. Uh, and, and it had involved partners from Wuhan as well as in the US and North Carolina. And in, in this early draft of the proposal, uh, they had said that all these virus experiments with genetic engineer, engineering will be done in North Carolina. But in the footnote, in, in the comment that uh, EcoHealth Alliance left on that document, it said, we'll, we'll just tell DAPA, we'll just tell the Defense Department that we're going to do this work in North Carolina. But once we get money, we'll, we'll redelegate them. And, and I believe a lot of the work can be done in Wuhan as well. And they said they were going to play up the U.S. side of it and, and downplay the, the Chinese part of it so that it wouldn't be seen as a negative 
by the Department of Defense. And elsewhere in that document, there was also another comment by the virologist from North Carolina saying that this sort of work is typically done at higher biosafety in the US. In China, they do it low biosafety. A lot of US virologists would freak out if they knew. Incredible. So it sounds like if the research community, there's some sentiment of them not wanting folks to be skeptical of gain of function research. You know, is there a path for the investigation of COVID origins to come through government funded research and directly hired researchers if the private universities aren't going to fund it? Uh, so just to clarify, do you mean is there a path to continue <coughs> this type of research or is there a path to investigate? Excuse me. So if the if the researchers are not you know willing to fund some kind of research to investigate COVID origins to an extent where it's conclusive, you know do you see a path for the government to potentially fund the research directly? Uh, yes. So I, I firmly believe that there's a way for the U.S. government to investigate. In fact, much of the evidence that's been unearthed so far have been outside of China. So these are documents or exchanges uh, in emails sent from Wuhan scientists to collaborators outside of China, so including the U.S. So unfortunately, most of this evidence has been unearthed by internet sleuths or independent scientists and journalists so swimming against the current this past four years. And there is an incredible amount of it. But so far, that's really the tip of the iceberg. We've only seen some few exchanges, and, and especially not the ones in late 2018 and 2019, the two years right before the pandemic. That's, those are the exchanges we need to see. And the government here in the U.S. has the ability to subpoena, has the ability to extract these from the U.S. collaborators of the Wuhan lab. And so far, they have not done it. Like, just imagine if we had done this in 2020. We've, we would have found out everything we know today and, and likely a lot more. Dr. Chan, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Some new revelations in the Harvard President Claudine Gay plagiarism saga, as new reporting implies that former President Barack Obama may have privately pressured Harvard into not firing Gay in the face of her universally panned performance during the Capitol Hill anti-Semitism hearings, and also mounting evidence that she plagiarized large portions of her scholarship. As Jewish Insider reports, according to a source familiar with the matter, Obama, a Harvard graduate, had privately lobbied on Gay's behalf as she faced pressure to resign in the wake of her disastrous appearance before the congressional hearing on anti-Semitism. Quote, it sounded like people were being asked to close ranks to keep the broader administration stable, including its composition. The source, who was informed of Obama's outreach and asked to speak anonymously to discuss a confidential matter, told Jewish Insider on Tuesday that much of the controversy circles around Penny Pritzker, a former Obama administration official and early Obama campaign backer who now serves as chair of Harvard's board of directors. Pritzker personally led the search committee that named Gay as president and praised her as a remarkable leader who is profoundly devoted to sustaining and enhancing Harvard's academic excellence. Now, some point to her connection with Gay's hiring as a reason for her current silence on the topic and for Obama's personal intervention in this matter. While it has not been confirmed as fact, there are rumors swirling about that Gay might be on her way out. Businessman and commentator Bill Ackerman posted on Twitter last week that he had heard from a source that is reliable, but a step or two removed from the situation, that the Harvard Corporation has asked President Gay to resign and she has refused. Gay has apparently said that if she is fired, she will sue. Gay has retained her own counsel. The whole debacle caused former 538 head Nate Silver to comment regarding both some slow stakes, Harvard plagiarism stuff and high stakes COVID origins controversies. It seems like progressives are staking out a position to save face in the short run. That's inevitably going to lead to a bigger loss of face in the long run. So, Robbie, what do you think that loss of face would be? Uh, I mean, I just think it's it's embarrassing and humiliating and discrediting to defend if anyone is still doing this. And I, I will note that a lot of actually liberal-minded people uh, have, have, are not defending Claudine Gay anymore. Um, the Washington Post, Ruth Marcus, said that Gay should resign. Uh, there was a New York Times um, a column, I believe, by John McWhorter, who may not, I don't know that he classifies himself as a liberal, but did appear in the New York Times. Uh, calling for her to resign. Um, I, I see a lot more people conceding that the allegations against her are very serious. Obviously, we talked about them last week. I've done a couple radars on the subject. 
uh, numerous examples of her not just doing sloppy plagiarism, uh, sloppy plagiarism, paraphrasing other people, but also in some cases lifting uh, passages without even acknowledging where they where they came from in the first place. Um, the very textbook examples of plagiarism over and over and over again. And it seems obvious that the president of Harvard, one of the most elite educational institutions on the planet, should be held to the same standards as a student who, uh, who would attend that university. Um, it doesn't have to be instantaneous. They could have a process. They could actually investigate and adjudicate this with rigor. It seems so far the Harvard uh, Corporation Board has just has, has stood by her, although now we might be hearing privately they might want her out, despite President Obama's lobbying, if you can believe that. So I don't know. Do you think—I'll I'll flip the question on its head. Do you think defend, protecting uh, Claudine Gay at this point should be a priority for, for progressives? I don't really think it should be a priority, but I think at this point it has to. If you care about the government intervening in a, a, a an institution, a university's leadership, many people are very upset about this that have nothing to do with Harvard University. I've never taken a class there. I took classes at Harvard when I was a graduate student. It is not this kind of rampant leftist uh, cesspool of ideas like many members of conservative media have made it out to be. Claudine Gay didn't even say she supports anti-Semitism. She said she finds the statements that were described by Stefanik to be incredibly grotesque. She didn't like them. She said that what she will do as president is protect free speech. We just had Liz McGill resign as president from UPenn after this hearing and the backlash from it because a donor, Ross Stevens, threatened to claw back a $100 million donation. Should presidents of universities be bought and sold by private actors who will not be students at the universities, who are not students at the universities? That is ridiculous to me, that someone with a lot of money can just go in and say, well, I'll give you $100 million if she's out. What does that say about the protection of free speech and the exchange of ideas in our country? That makes me incredibly concerned. So when I think about the kind of backlash Claudine Gay is getting for simply saying, she'll allow students to form their own opinion on the matter of Israel-Palestine, I think it would be ridiculous for her to resign over this kind of backlash, especially because it's coming from the same actors who are always trying to say free speech is under threat in the United States of America. So we can have free speech unless it's about Israel-Palestine. I think that's absurd. Well, A, at no point did I ever call for the government to do it to intervene in this matter at all. I don't think it's a matter for the government. Uh, B, um, I would agree with you that she should not face consequences for just defending students and faculty members' free speech rights. In fact, it is incumbent on her to do so. I wish she had done so more uh, vocally, more full-throatedly in her in her history of presiding over Harvard. Um, there are lots of examples of her not doing that. In fact, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression ranks Harvard either last or second to last of all the hundreds of institutions it ranks on the question of free speech. She is not a free speech leader of this institution. She, the, the, the organization that does free speech rankings has her school last. So she has failed to uphold free speech commitments. Do I think she should be fired for articulating a free speech viewpoint on Israel-Palestine um, in, in the halls of Congress? Absolutely not. In fact, as I've said multiple times, I substantively agree with her. It, in fact, it is it does take context, the kinds of judgments she was being asked about. I don't think they've applied context in the past, but what she was saying was correct. Absolutely, she should not be fired for that. She should be fired or she should be disciplined or subject to some kind of investigation or proceeding for committing rampant plagiarism over and over again. That is not a free speech issue. That has nothing to do with free speech. That's just free speech is not. I can plagiarize someone's you know, documents and then face no academic consequences at Harvard or another institution. That's crazy. No, one, no, no, stu no student could get before a disciplinary board and say, when I copied my, you know, when I just filled in all the bubbles on my test based on what my neighbor had done, that was my free speech, so you can't hold me accountable for that. That's, that's ridiculous. And, and, and the evidence that has been marshaled that she committed plagiarism is, is very persuasive at this point. So no, I don't care what people why people have seized on this, but it, what, they're, what they've presented is true. And, and at the end of the day, you have to be in just a managerial role as the custodian of the university. She has to be held, she, doesn't she have to be held accountable the same way students would be held accountable? 
Well, the the board at Harvard, the the staff at Harvard responsible for looking into things like this looked into it, and they said that they didn't find that they violated that Claudine Gay, the president, violated the code of conduct back in in 1997, and so. They already went through their internal process. This is. I think the they need business. to borrow my magnifying glass, Jessica. I think they need my. I'll give them. I'll let them have my detective hat, and my little uh, my little pipe, and they could maybe try to get to the bottom of it a little harder. I think. Yeah, I don't think the problem is they couldn't see the words clearly, Robbie. I think you know the problem here is there are so many people. I get that your view is that the plagiarism is wrong, and that you know someone who commits an act of plagiarism shouldn't be the president of an esteemed university. But I, I don't know that I believe that what she did was plagiarism in her paraphrasing and her failure to quote. Harvard doesn't believe it either. This is the matter of the university to be settled within the university. And it sounds like they already reviewed her work. What I have a problem with here is that there are many people that don't actually have a problem with the plagiarism directly, but this is what they've got. They know that Claudine Gay is not gonna crack down on the folks that saved free Palestine at Harvard, on the folks that say from the river to the sea at Harvard, on the folks that recognize that what Israel is doing by bombing refugee camps, bombing schools being used as a shelter, raiding and attacking the busiest hospitals in Gaza, where there are, are babies that are receiving treatment in the NICU. They raid the hospital and it results in the death of over 40 babies. When we had these kind of false narratives that were proven to have no evidence about what Hamas is doing, but then it's well documented that Israel is doing all of these things, these genocidal acts. They've killed 21,000 people, 8,000 of those children. If she's going to defend people at Harvard saying that, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But there are very many people that don't want Israel to be criticized, that are now attacking Claudine Gay, and they want her to resign because of plagiarism. But really what it's about is that she's going to allow people to criticize Israel at one of the most powerful institutions in the world. And that's why they want her to resign. And so that's why I think it's very smart that she got counsel, because I don't think they have grounds to force her to quit a job that she seems to be doing an okay job. Uh, at, at serving as the president of Harvard University. So I think if, if she does ultimately get pressured to resign, it's gonna be a, a big loss for free speech. It's gonna be a big loss for having political conversations in the United States that go against what the regime or the administration supports in the United States. I don't think it would be a blow to free speech. I think it might be a huge win for free speech if Harvard were to hire a person to run the university who takes free speech more seriously than she does, given that they're ranked dead last by the organization that does free speech um, rankings, FIRE. Which, and, and by the way, FIRE has criticized numerous institutions for uh, violating uh, the free speech rights of pro-Palestinian student organizations, has spoke out, for instance, against what Ron DeSantis, as did I, against what Ron DeSantis did in Florida, um, decertifying the pro-Palestinian student groups in a couple colleges in Florida. So I look, I, I agree that pro-Palestinian speech should be protected, just like pro-Israel speech, pro-any kind of speech. We, 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 we should have broad tolerance for, you know, they're not Literally, they don't have to follow exactly the First Amendment, but many of these institutions have committed to a free speech paradigm that reflects the First Amendment, and they they have promised that to their students and their faculty when you know students gave their money to attend these institutions and faculty decided to work there. So I think they ought to live up to those commitments. Harvard has manifestly failed to do so under Claudine Gay's leadership, and and the fact that and again, if the shoe fits, if it is plagiarism, and it certainly looks like it to me, they can pretend it's not. But it, it, it certainly seems consistent that, that it violates um, Harvard's standards. And, and, and given that, I don't think she can just say, well, the people going after me dislike me for some other reason. Again, that wouldn't be an excuse if you were before a disciplinary review board at a university as a student or professor and you said, well, my, the, you know, the person who caught me cheating on my homework is, you know, hates me for political reasons or dislikes me. For, that, that wouldn't matter. That wouldn't matter if, if it was an actual transgression of the policy. So I, I don't know. I think... Uh, I think this one's becoming clearer and clearer cut, but I, I, I it's, again, I'm not upset with her necessarily over her answers at the hearing, um, but I do, I do think people uncovered some pretty stark examples to my mind um, of plagiarism. But uh, maybe we'll see, um, we'll see how this develops. Um, we'll see if we can get more conclusive reporting on whether she is actually um, at risk at this point. If, if this reporting on the behind the behind closed doors goings-on are true, and maybe they are looking to get rid of her. We'll have to see. I'm sure we'll be still covering this story in the new year. More rising right after this. 
House of Cards fans rejoice? Well, the newest episode of the show just dropped, although it might not be what you think. So actor Kevin Spacey joined Tucker Carlson in character as the political juggernaut Frank Underwood in a strange interview. Let's take a look at some of that. 2024 has not even begun yet, and it does seem like the presidential race is effectively frozen in place, if not over. We know who the candidates are. It's too late for another to get in. Some have already dropped out. But is it too late? Is there anyone in this country of 350 million people who could jump in at this late date and re-scramble the calculus of electoral politics? Well, there may be someone. And in fact, you already know him. You know his face. And the question is, will he get in this cycle? And that's my question for you. Well, that's really a decision for the people, Tucker. It's not something that I really think about or want to do. And Merry Christmas to you, too. In addition to discussing a potential Underwood run, the pair also talked about Underwood's, or I mean Kevin Spacey's, thoughts on uh, several political topics. So it is bizarre that they decided to publicly cut ties with me on allegations alone, allegations that have now been proven false, because I don't think there's any question. Netflix exists because of me. I put them on the map, and they tried to put me in the ground. Do, do you think within Netflix and the leadership suites that your influence is still felt? Well, according to your research, my influence is felt every time every customer opens the app. I'd say that's pretty powerful. Oh, that's true. When are you getting back to work, by the way? Oh, I've been back at work from the moment we started talking, Tucker. So does that mean this is like an episode or is it real? Well, it's probably a little of both. So, uh, Kevin Spacey obviously uh, was fired by Netflix after uh, multiple accusations of sexual uh, misconduct against uh, the, the actor Anthony Rapp, I believe, filed one. Uh, there were other people as well. He was acquitted uh, in every trial, every proceeding that transpired after that. Um, totally acquitted. So now talking in character, that was his character on the, the show House of Cards. Uh, and he used to, I, he does this every year around Christmas. He gives uh, an address as Larry, uh, as Larry Underwood as the character, which I know has, has made people, has made people's heads explode year after year when he was still, you know, under uh, legal water facing all these accusations. But at the end of the day, he was acquitted. So he can do whatever he wants. And he, uh, he maintained his innocence. And uh, there was not you know, a presumption, you're innocent until proven guilty, are you not? Yeah, I think there are a lot of people that recognize Kevin Spacey can afford very good lawyers, and there are people who potentially are very guilty, and because they have such good lawyers, they're able to get off scot-free. So, I don't know, it's really tough when you have so much firsthand testimony that he did these things, and then the court decides in this way. Uh, it's kind of shocking, but for him to go on and, and do this interview at Tucker Carlson and bring the character back, I think it reminds me of when we had actors recently on strike and you had these production companies really wanting to own the, the likeness of them to be able to use them to recreate their performances with AI to produce advertisements and, and photos for marketing of the media. I think that's really scary. But it's, it's interesting that they don't own the rights to Kevin Spacey's character, Frank Underwood, and he's allowed to kind of perform in character. It kind of begs the question, if someone else were to cast him in a film and he were to act as a similar character, would that be okay? It's very interesting from the intellectual property perspective. But, uh, you know, I think House of Cards viewers were unsettled enough that there were allegations that they really didn't want to watch him in the character anymore. I don't know. Can we separate uh, the the artist from the art? In the case of Kevin Spacey, I think he was playing such a dark character that, that maybe that's why they couldn't. Well, I, I do really believe in trying to celebrate, uh, trying to separate, rather, the art and artist. I, I think it's, I think you get into a weird place if you have to like and agree with all of a, a creator of, of art, uh, uh, like and agree with all their politics, all their moral behavior in order to en endorse the finished product gets you into some weird places that, like, if we're being consistent, that no one can clear. So I, I, I am a big believer in separating those two things. Uh, but at the same time, in this case, I'm not sure it's even necessary because I, I mean, you're absolutely allowed to persist in your view that he was guilty of the accusations. Um, I, I'm not trying to delegitimize that. That's fine. I mean, he was, it was multiple court 
proceedings, right? There was one. There was a one in the UK, and there was one here. Um, I, I'm sure money talks and helps you in in the legal um, system. I'm not like denying that. But at the end of the day, if you if you're found innocent like multiple times by by different jurisdictions, um, again, totally fine to persist in one's belief that he was actually guilty. But I, I don't know. At some point, it's just like. That, that's the end of trying to. I, I don't know. You're just. You are innocent in the eyes of the court. I don't know that you should. So Netflix took that action, obviously, before he was when he was accused, before he was found guilty of anything. Now we're in a little bit with the Me Too stuff, where where sometimes they're waiting, like the uh, like um, Jonathan Majors, the uh, the actor from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, King, He Who Remains. He was just fired from Marvel, uh, but they did wait until the court case, and he was he was found guilty of of sexual. Uh, or of, of a, not of sexual, of just uh, of, of uh, assault against uh, an ex-girlfriend, um, and, and they fired him. Subsequent to that, uh, Netflix obviously took its action, and in other cases, actions have been taken merely at the accusation level. I think it probably does behoove an organization to wait for a verdict, and then if the verdict is is not guilty, I don't like if you're not obviously it's a private company you can do whatever they want, but if you're not guilty under the legal system, I mean I don't know. Do you see what I'm getting at? <laughs> Yeah, I think that's what it is. Like, it's a it's a private company. They can decide what they want to do with their staff and what kind of disciplinary action they take. They can do their own kind of investigation and, and talk to the people who have accused, you know, someone of doing something. But I, it's really hard for a, a private organization. This happens a lot on university campuses where you have a, a, a panel of people, usually they're pr professors or staff, at the college or university and they have to decide something of extreme fate if there's an accusation of assault or sexual harassment or whatever it is they review the evidence these are not people who are you know members of the community selected to to be a part of a jury it's not a, a formal trial but they they make a very important decision sometimes if the student can continue to to study at the university if they have to leave and so we're in a tricky space where uh, we have to have our own form of justice where, you know, sometimes the Justice Department and the courts in the United States are, are not up to par. You have so many cases that are decided by a judge without a trial by jury, which is something that's guaranteed by the Constitution. And this is like a regular everyday practice. You also have people, you know, withheld because they can't afford to pay cash bail. You shouldn't be allowed to be imprisoned if we believe in as the Constitution and many of our, our legal precedents say that you uh, cannot have cruel and unusual punishment and that you actually are innocent until proven guilty in the United States. So it's a very complicated landscape. And I just, I don't know if universities and private institutions are equipped to make this decision, these decisions, but I also don't have a lot of faith in our formal judicial system either, Robbie. I think, yeah, the, uh, you know. The, the university adjudication practices, I, I used to do a lot of uh, reporting on, um, uh, for reason, the Title IX uh, campus sexual misconduct proceedings were just, were insane, uh, were, so, were Kafkaesque in terms of uh, due process, were in, in many cases wildly unfair to both parties, frankly, to accused and accusers, had some truly pernicious um, extrajudicial ideas festering there. Um, they were reformed under the Trump administration, and then the reforms were swiftly undone, unfortunately, by the Biden administration. Um, yeah, I, I don't have any faith in those institutions to do fair investigations on this t subject. I don't really have a lot of, I, I don't know that a, a corporations HR team is going to necessarily do a, a great job either or a job that is, I mean, depending on what you think is great, right? Obviously, they can do whatever. They can fire whoever they want. They don't have to employ anyone they don't want to employ. But should it be you know, fair to the person accused of something, I, I think we would, I mean, it should be fair to the accuser and the accused. I think most people would, uh, would, you know, would, recognize, um, would recognize that. And it, it's, I don't know, it starts to become, well, because you, know, you as a progressive probably believe that uh, the criminal justice system should be more progressive and people deserve rehabilitation. Isn't it weird then to say that, but they shouldn't, they don't deserve to have jobs? I, I like, right? Is it, aren't these things intention a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I support a federal jobs guarantee. It's just what kind of a job will they have? Will they be a, a member of the media that becomes a role model for young children because they're playing this supermodel? Is that a, a job that someone's accused of these things that's gotten themselves into situations you know, where they can be accused of these things, where there's some grounds for a case to be made against them. I don't know. Maybe that's something that if you run a superhero kind of Marvel 
you know, cinematic universe, you are responsible for making that decision on behalf of the viewers. But I think, you know, Trump's reforms to the criminal justice system really just reaffirmed the fact that slavery is still legal constitutionally as punishment for a crime. They really made it a lot easier for private prisons to operate in the United States. There wasn't a lot of the kind of reform that we needed to make things fair for many people who can't afford attorneys, who can't afford to pay their cash bail. Um, even people you know, facing charges like these, perhaps, Robbie, if they were fired, they could bring a case against their employer for wrongful termination. You know, it would be a, a tough case to argue, but I can see that kind of thing happening moving forward if, if we have so many people that are fired before it becomes time to have a trial by jury if they ever even get one. But I think, yeah, as a progressive, I do believe in rehabilitation. But I think, you know, maybe having this conversation about someone so many kids look up to as a role model, maybe it's better to have the rehabilitation be you get cast in a, a role in adult movies, movies that are mostly cons- uh, consumed by adults. And I think rehabilitation needs to happen in in a way where you make things whole again and you have a conversation about it. But I don't know if having the conversation with the viewers of the Marvel franchise, which are mostly children, is appropriate. Hmm. So you're saying Kevin Spacey gets to have a job back, but maybe he's a fry cook or something. Actually, like he wanted to be in that one <laughs> Kevin Spacey movie, right? Uh, where the plastic bag blows in the wind. One of my, help me out here. Somebody, anybody remember? I don't know that one. American Beauty, that's yeah, it. That's it. Build that's some a, infrastructure. Yeah, all right. Well, we, uh, uh, that is, does it for us for today. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, we've got uh, at least one more show, maybe two more shows in 2023. I'll be back tomorrow with Brianna Joy Gray, and Jessica will be back on Friday, I believe, with Amber Duke. You won't want to miss that. Please like, share, and subscribe uh, wherever you can, and listen to us in podcast form. Download us, uh, print pictures of us for your wallpaper. Do whatever you want. It's all good. More rising tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye.